0: you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. The Supreme Court of North Carolina has resumed sitting for the dispatch of business. God save the state and this honorable court.
2: Our next case is state versus Reed. I'll note that justice burger is recused in this case. We will hear from the appellant.
0: May it please the court, Chief Justice and Associate Justices, I'm Ward Miller
1: representing you, Reed. May I please reserve five minutes for rebuttal? Tarris Reed was a 14-year-old middle school student with a combined IQ of 66 when he was arrested and wrongly convicted more than 20 years ago for a robbery and murder that he did not commit. Mr. Reed was convicted primarily based on an unrecorded statement that he signed, that was written by the lead detective at a higher grade level than at which he could read or write. At the evidentiary hearing on the motion for appropriate relief, William McCormick testified that Robert Shaw, Tony Bristow and Norman Cox showed up at his home sweating and out of breath on the night of the assault. The following day, Shaw confessed in detail that those three youths committed the crimes for which Mr. Reed has served more than 20 years. Based on this newly discovered evidence, the trial court in an exercise of reasoned discretion ordered a new trial. The trial court's 67 findings of fact were supported and supported its conclusions, which also supported its order for a new trial that should have been upheld on appellate review. Instead, the court of appeals in this case erred in several ways. The court first erred by employing an incorrect standard of review for factual findings that would subject them to an abuse of discretion review. The Court of Appeals used this to substitute its credibility determination for the trial courts and invaded the province of the trial court by reweighing the evidence and resolving discrepancies in the evidence, which is solely in the province of the trial court. The standard employed by the Court of Appeals would invite reversal under an abusive discretion standard any time the record evidence would support contrary findings. The Court of Appeals further erred by employing a heightened standard of review beyond what was reasonable in order for trial counsel to exercise due diligence. That would also invite ineffective assistance of counsel claims. And finally, the Court of Appeals erred in its application of this court's precedent for determining whether the evidence was competent under the residual exception 803.24 when it overturned the trial court's supported finding
0: that the state was on actual notice, in this case for more than four years that McCormick would testify to Shaw's confession. This case
1: presents several issues of first impression for this court. And for that reason, we are asking this court to reverse the court of appeals and in its opinion, articulate the standard of review for factual findings in cases involving newly discovered evidence. To articulate the standard for due diligence where counsel does not call a reluctant witness as to whose testimony he's uninformed and to explain the standards for newly discovered evidence to be competent. I would first like to discuss with the court the incorrect standard of review that was employed in this case in reviewing the factual findings. The state's right to appeal of an order for a new trial based on newly discovered evidence is strictly limited by statute to questions of law. 15 a 1445 has been strictly construed by this court and for that reason, based on the plain language of the statute, as well as this court's precedent, in cases involving newly discovered evidence, factual findings are binding and presumed supported. Even if this court were to look beyond the plain language of the statute and its precedent, the Court of Appeals still employed the wrong standard of review by subjecting factual findings to an abuse of discretion review. Court of Appeals used this incorrect standard to justify its invasion of the trial court's roles by making its own factual findings, by reweighing the evidence, and by resolving inconsistencies of the evidence in the evidence that were solely in the province of the trial court. This court has held for decades that for MARs generally, findings of fact are binding if they're supported by the evidence and they're not subject to abuse of discretion review. In State v. Hyman, for example, this court recited that standard and discussed extensively the deference that is owed to the trial court's factual findings, even when there's ample evidence in the record that would support contrary findings. And this is because the trial court is in a unique position where it can observe the witness and make those credibility determinations. In this court's most recent newly discovered evidence case, State versus Rhodes, the court also recited the standard for MARs generally that factual findings are binding if supported by competent evidence. However, that in that case, the state had not challenged any of the factual findings made by the trial court, and so this court has yet to squarely address the strict limitation of 15A-1445 on the state's right to appeal
0: and the fact that it's limited only to questions of law. At this time, I'd like to discuss how the Court of Appeals erred when it invaded the
1: province of the trial court and held that Mr. Reed did not prove by preponderance of the evidence that the newly discovered evidence was probably true. As this court has held in several contexts, the weight given to any evidence is exclusively the province of the fact finder. Whether newly discovered evidence is probably true is a factual finding because it's largely a credibility determination that can only be made by the trial court. This court has recognized that the trial court holds a distinct advantage because it sees the witnesses and observes their demeanor. And because of the trial court's more favorable position, the trial court is given the responsibility of discovering the truth. The trial court is entrusted with the duty to hear the testimony and to weigh and resolve any conflicts in the evidence, to find the facts, and then based on those facts, to render a legal decision, which is exactly what the trial court did here. The most critical factor in assessing whether the evidence was probably true in this case and was sufficiently trustworthy for admission was the trial court's assessment of William McCormick's credibility, and great deference was owed to the trial court's findings. The trial court alone was uniquely positioned to assess McCormick's credibility, and the court found that McCormick was emotional, and that his emotion gave convincing force to his testimony. The Court further found that McCormick had no motivation to testify other than to disclose the true facts that were known to him. All of those findings supported the court's determination that Shaw's confession was probably true, regardless of whether this court agrees that it is indeed a factual finding because it's largely a credibility determination,
0: or even if it is found by this court to be a conclusion of law. I'd like to now discuss how the Court of Appeals erred
1: by employing a heightened standard of due diligence or for due diligence beyond what is reasonable. Trial counsel must do what is reasonable under the circumstances in order to exercise due diligence. And that inquiry is always going to be highly fact specific, the same as it is for an ineffective assistance of counsel claim.
3: I mean, Ms. Miller, is due diligence, you've you've, you've, I read your brief with respect to what you thought the standard of review was with respect to the uh, probably true problem of the analysis. Is it is a is due diligence a question of law or a question of fact?
1: This court's precedent has regularly held that due diligence is a question of law Um, and and so it it should be reviewed de novo and has consistently been reviewed de novo by this court. Okay, and so, because it is a conclusion of law, this court's role as was the role of the court of appeals. Was to look to the factual findings that were made and to see whether the factual findings that were made. Supported the conclusion by the trial court that due diligence was exercised and that the. Evidence was not known or available at the time of trial. And here, counsel exercised reasonable diligence by employing an investigator, making multiple efforts to speak with McCormick, who in fact evaded police, evaded the defense investigator, and also defense counsel, and never gave any interview or statement prior to Mr. Reed's trial. Trial counsel could not reasonably be expected to put on the stand a reluctant and possibly adverse witness without knowing first. Whether this witness had relevant information, and then second, whether that information would be helpful or harmful to Mr. Reed, the Court of Appeals would require trial counsel to call a reluctant witness to the stand as to whose testimony he is uninformed. That simply cannot be the law, and would invite deficient performance and ineffective assistance of counsel claims.
2: Was was uh, Mr. McCormick at the trial itself?
1: Mr. McCormick testified unclearly that at some point in time he was in the courtroom when the lead detective testified. It was was not clear whether that was during 1 of the 2 trials, or whether that might have been during the the hearing on the motion to suppress.
2: It's, it's, it wouldn't be, uh, or an attorney wouldn't be limited under those circumstances. Necessarily, um, if the attorney pointed out to the court that. the attorney had exercised uh, due diligence to find a witness and that witness, in fact, was in the courtroom, uh, the court could allow uh, the attorney to privately interview that witness before forcing him to um, call the individuals a witness, correct?
1: Yes, Chief Justin Newby, I think that that would be conceivable. Um, where I the court of appeals went wrong here, however, is the Court of Appeals made its own factual findings, finding that trial counsel knew that McCormick was in the courtroom. And in fact, there was no evidence in the record that supported that. So not only should the Court of Appeals not have been making that finding, but it was also further entirely unsupported. And we always have to look to what was reasonable under the circumstances. And here, counsel received rumors on the street, a number of different people's names were being mentioned, McCormick's as well as others. As trial counsel testified, That was the reason that he went and got an investigator so that they could go out and try to talk to people and see if they could get any one of them to talk to us. The one time when trial counsel did see McCormick um, in the courthouse with his mother, he attempted to talk to them and they refused to talk to him.
2: Did counsel at any point try to seek uh, the assistance of the court uh, in uh, being allowed to interview Mr. McCormick?
1: He did not, and based on what he actually knew at the time, there wasn't reason for trial counsel to have gone to the court for either a material witness order for depositions or for any other information. All that trial counsel had at the time was information. Well, he had reason to believe first that his client did not commit this murder, and that was something that he that was a conclusion. He drew from his interviews with his clients and other information that he was hearing on the street. He was hearing from people on the street that someone else was responsible and that it wasn't Mr. Reed. And so based on that, he got an investigator. And at that point, and what the investigator's records show, and what's true in so many criminal cases, is that drumming up evidence and people who are willing to talk to you and share what they know is extremely difficult. And so while they were inter- able to interview some people whose names were mentioned, there were some who, who were reluctant, who never came forward, and never offered the information that they had available. And at the time, there wasn't sufficient specificity for trial counsel to go before the court because he didn't know at that time whether McCormick indeed had information and whether it was relevant and whether it would be helpful or harmful to Mr. Reed.
2: Well, is it your position that um, when an attorney uh, is aware that there and certainly in every case, there's a multitude of individuals that could be witnesses. And they have some information about. um, That the uh, witness could have information relevant. Um, What is the standard for uh, an attorney to pursue. uh, A witness, or is it your position that. uh, Once the attorney determines precisely, which witnesses to interview. uh, That. Uh, uh, once the attorney chooses not to interview a particular witness. That if that witness had relevant information. That it would always be newly discovered evidence. I mean, where's the standard here. With regard to decisions by attorneys to interview or not interview. Sure,
1: I think the standard is, is always going to be reasonableness and is always going to be highly fact specific here based on hearing. Based on trial counsel, having heard the names of the McCormick brothers, as people possibly had information, if he took no action whatsoever there, that would be unreasonable. What was reasonable was for him to employ an investigator and to have that investigator try to talk to them, which is what he did. And I'd say, again, if we were to look and if trial counsel just once showed up at their home, they weren't available and that was the end of it. Well, I'd say also that that would not be reasonable and that would not be an exercise of due diligence. But what trial counsel did here, and what the investigator did here, was they made repeated efforts to try to talk to these boys, and were unable to get them to talk prior to Mr. Reed's trial. So they ne- trial counsel never learned whether they had information that was helpful or harmful to Mr. Reed. And it's always going to be highly fact specific.
4: And and on the um, question of what facts we have to. Um, take in in evaluating whether or not, um, there was due diligence here, the trial court in its order says the details of his testimony referring to Mr. McCormick. The details of his testimony were unknown to defendant at the time of trial. That's a fact that the trial court found that we have to, even though it's a de novo standard of review on the legal issue. Don't we have to take that fact as a given?
1: Yes, Justice Charles, that's correct. The trial court made that finding that that the substance of the testimony or the details of what McCormick testified to in the affidavit, uh, I'm sorry, not in the affidavit, but at the evidentiary hearing was unknown to trial counsel at the time of trial. And that was further supported by trial counsel's testimony. when when he was asked if you had known what McCormick put in his affidavit or what he testified to in the evidentiary hearing, would you have called him as a witness at Mr. Reid's trial? He said, yes, that's exactly what we were looking for. That's what we were hoping to find. We knew someone had some information, right? But, but very clearly, that supports. They didn't know exactly who it was or who did it, but he had enough information to think his client was not responsible, and he was doing all that he could and what was reasonable to try to find witnesses who had relevant information that could be helpful to Mr. Reed.
4: And then just to get your perspective on the interplay between the due diligence standard And the ineffective assistance of counsel claim that, um, the, um. The other opinion in this case suggested that the trial courts ruling was wrong, because what should have happened is he should have this should be an ineffective assistance of counsel claim. And my question is, um, is, is it possible that counsel's actions here both failed to meet the due diligence standard, but also failed to, to, but were sufficient that they failed to meet the
1: ineffective assistance of counsel standard? Justice Earls, I, I don't, I think that these two claims are mutually exclusive. And that is something that this court could clear up um, in its opinion, is that if, and I think essentially the, the, the state goes as far in its brief to essentially say that trial counsel was ineffective. Um, Because there needs to be some route for relief here. If either, if if it was discoverable at the time of trial, then certainly it was not, due diligence was not exercised and it would be a basis for an ineffective assistance of counsel claim. But if someone were to bring an ineffective assistance of counsel claim and could not be successful because trial counsel was found to have exercised reasonable diligence and have um, performed as he should and that performance was not deficient, well then it, it needs to meet the criteria for newly discovered evidence and due diligence was exercised.
5: Counsel assuming for the sake of argument that uh, defense counsel uh, at trial uh, had been successful in getting Mr. McCormick. To the stand to testify uh, what relevance, if any, should this court give. uh, Mr. McCormick's testimony during the course of the MAR hearing that even if Mr. McCormick had been called to testify that he would not have said. Uh, what he knew at the time, because of his, uh, tendency to live by what was termed, uh, the code of the street. And therefore would not have said, uh, even if called to testify at the trial, what he was saying at the MAR hearing.
1: Justice Morgan, and please correct me if I'm not understanding your question. Um, I believe that here that the findings that were made by the trial court as to Mr. McCormick at that time living an entirely different life living by a street code not being willing to talk um both out of fear that others that there could be harm that would come to him and that you don't help the police that was further those were factual findings that further supported the trial court's conclusion that th- that this information was not known or available at the time of trial so even if it through a hypothetical that the trial counsel had Subpoenaed, which we still stand by that would not have been a reasonable decision since he did not know how McCormick might testify or have any reason to know. Um, there, there still is support in the record here that shows. McCormick wasn't going to give this information back then when he was 16 years old, even if he had been called to testify.
5: But what impact, if any, should that have. Uh, to the aspect here of what would qualify as newly uh, discovered evidence. Uh, if at all, uh, in terms of even if McCormick had been called to testify, and he had testified, if you believe what he is saying currently, untruthfully, that it would still not qualify or perhaps not qualify as newly discovered evidence.
0: I think it would. it would still, it still supports that this was not known or available
1: at the time of trial. If I'm understanding your question correctly.
0: Yeah,
5: I'm I'm not stating it artfully, but thankfully you're translating it in such a way that others can understand. Yes. Yeah,
0: it it's it
1: still it's still supported that this information was not known or available back in 1997
0: when when Mr. Reed was tried. And so the Court of Appeals in this case, grossly mischaracterized
1: the record evidence here and went so far as to make its own findings that were unsupported. Uh, The the Court of Appeals here was suggesting that trial counsel actually knew that McCormick was in the courtroom and that that trial counsel knew far more information than he in fact knew at the time of Mr. Reed's trial. Um, Trial counsel testified that the McCormick names came up As did other names of people who may have been involved or may have had more information. That's why he went and got an investigator and he said, quote. To see if any of them would talk to us and then likewise, when he was asked about, would you have put McCormick on the stand at that time? Had, you known this information. He said, yes, this is exactly what we were trying to find. We knew somebody knew what happened. And so this issue, as I think a number of the justices and Chief Justice's questions have indicated, this is an issue of first impression for this court. This is distinct from other due diligence cases um, over the years in newly discovered evidence. And in this case, the numerous factual findings that were made by the trial court supported its conclusion that based on trial counsel having retained an investigator, making multiple efforts to speak to McCormick and other witnesses, and that McCormick would not talk when he was 16 years old, all of those findings supported the trial court's conclusion that trial counsel exercised due diligence and uh, that
0: this information was not known or available at the time of Mr. Reed's trial. And at this point, I would like to shift to um, another
1: error that was committed by the Court of Appeals in its opinion as it erred in its review of the trial courts uh, conclusion that this evidence would be competent and admissible at a new trial. First, the Court of Appeals erred um, in finding or in actually in overturning the supported finding by the trial court that the state was on notice. The state had actual notice in this case for more than four years and not once objected or claimed that it was caught by surprise or didn't have a fair opportunity to contest McCormick's testimony. This supports the trial court's conclusion that the state was on notice and had a fair opportunity to prepare to meet the statement and to contest its use. The trial court's order in this case demonstrated a clear understanding and application of the law for whether evidence is is admissible under 80324, the residual hearsay exception. The court articulated and made specific findings as to all the factors that this court enunciated in triplet specifically as related to the most important factor, the third one as to whether the statement was sufficiently trustworthy. The trial court found that Shaw's confession was trustworthy because it was an admission of criminal conduct by Shaw against his penal interest. And this court has placed significant weight on that, specifically in Nichols, uh, discussing the degree to which elements of if an already enumerated exception are present in um, the statement that is proffered. The trial court also found that the statement that Shaw's confession was consistent with what was observed by McCormick the night before, that he had showed up sweating and out of breath and having run from a cab. It was consistent with the victim having been assaulted by more than one young male. The court further found that that Shaw had demonstrated personal knowledge of the events described. He gave specific detail as to how the victim had um, pulled the necklace actually from Shaw's neck, and that was part of the reason that they commenced to beating on the victim. And um, and Finally, um, which has also been found to be significant by this court, uh, the trial court found that Shaw had a strong motivation to confide in his friend, and no reason to claim false responsibility, and that Shaw had never recanted. The trial court in this case gave careful and thoughtful consideration to its order that reflected an exercise of reasoned discretion. The order reflected clear understanding and application of the test for admissibility under the residual exception as the court made all the necessary findings and specifically for assessing
0: the trustworthiness of the statement. Accordingly, the trial court's order should have been upheld. And At this point, I would like to reserve my remaining time for rebuttal. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the
2: appellate.
1: Good afternoon. I'm Mary Carla Babb
6: with the North Carolina Department of Justice here on behalf of the state. Your honors in this case, the court of appeals was correct in reversing the trial courts order because under the test established by this court, the evidence defendant relied upon was not newly discovered evidence. Um, I would like to uh, respond to uh, the argument of the appellant, um, but. Uh, each of the arguments and go through some parts of the test, but I 1st, wanted to highlight 2 things that I think are important for the court to keep in mind here. 1st, um, is the nature of the evidence for the trial court, particularly highlighting some um, that appellant did not mention. And 2nd, the lens through which the trial court should have viewed this evidence. But so 1st, turning to the evidence, it's important to look at the nature of that evidence. So here we have uh, you know, over 15 years. Prior to the time the defendant uh, brought the newly discovered evidence claim, he had confessed to assaulting and robbing the victim. The victim mumbled defendant's last name along with the nickname of one of the other people defendant named as an accomplice in his confession when the victim was asked immediately afterwards who did it. Defendant gave a detailed confession. Uh, it had details the officer would know would not have known, including details that were personal to defendant and uh, such as his relationship, the specific type of relationship, a familiar relationship he had with uh, Anthony Reed and with uh, Elliot McCormick. He also noted uh, in his confession uh, the church he thought that Mr. Graham went to and that he uh, said his grandmother knew Mr. Graham's wife and the grandmother would testify at. Trial um, and and say that she went to church uh, with the Grams. Um, there there's never been there's no evidence of coercion or misconduct by the officer here. Um, defendant's confession withstood legal challenges both in the trial court and the court of appeals. Um, defendant presented evidence at trial that he claimed called the confession into question, including expert witness testimony and the. Testimony from seven uh, alibi witnesses, all of which was rejected by the jury, Um, and also uh, 15 years prior to defendant bringing his claim, um, his defense team knew the information uh, with detail that he's now claiming is newly discovered evidence. So here, the trial court overturned a 20-plus year-old jury verdict in a first-degree murder case uh, where defendant had confessed. Based upon hearsay, where the declarant has never been established to be unavailable, where there was no evidence of any effort to get him to the MAR hearing or to prove that he could be subpoenaed at the MAR hearing, um, and where the content of his statement uh, was not independently corroborated.
7: Now, moving.
3: May, since you started off with the, the question, there was, one, was a, one thing I wanted to ask you. I was going to do it later, but I think I better do it now. Uh, is the state contending that the fact that the defendant confessed and that the admission, the admissibility of that confession, was upheld on appeal, has some kind of binding effect for purposes of our analysis in this case?
6: No, Your Honor. The state is not contending that. There, there have of course, been the state recognizes there's been. Con- Cases uh, newly discovered evidence, mostly DNA cases where uh, that evidence has come up and and that in the confession would not be binding. It wouldn't be binding. If you if you had actual. Um, newly discovered evidence in the form of testimony here, the the error was the trial court didn't properly consider uh, the evidence at trial. It referred to. The confession as a purported and alleged confession and defendant has made uh, the argument, well, that was just the way the trial court referred to it. Well, words have meaning. Words well, have
4: meaning.
3: It, 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 it is the is the trial court in determining whether the newly discovered evidence standard has been met, uh, particularly the the probably true part and the uh, likelihood that the outcome would have been different part of, uh, is the trial court entitled to consider what weight a jury would be likely to give uh, a confession, given all the surrounding facts and circumstances.
6: Yeah, yes, Your Honor, it is. Right. It is that,
3: that 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 helps me. I wasn't was certain I was understanding your argument, but I am now. Thank you.
6: Yes, Your Honor. I mean, and, and with conf- you know confessions, when there's a, a a a contention that it's false, you know, you'll see some expert witness testimony on post conviction about false confessions. None of that was here the The bulk of uh, the, all that defendant did he made like a three three sentence argument about false confessions. I think at the MAR hearing has cited some articles. You know, I mean, you'll see expert witnesses bought in on that. So, I mean, I think that the but I think that the uh, I, I think that the, w- the error here was just not considering the totality of all the evidence, including what was at trial. That was a strict error in law. Um, and moving to the lens through which the trial, so, uh, I'm sorry, just
4: just to two quick. Little questions on the facts, um, because the the trial court on this question of whether or not the trial court gave. Um, or or appropriately considered the confession, um, the trial court also said, um, in in paragraph 7 of its order on page 440, of the record for the purposes of the, MAR, the defendant's statement has been treated as properly admitted into evidence with its weight and credibility for the jury. So, I mean, isn't that the trial court saying, you know, I'm, I'm. We are considering this properly admitted, um, but the the jury gets to decide the weight. that's
6: decide. what? Yeah, your honor, your yes, your honor. That is what uh, number seven on on page 440 of the of the order says. But if you look at at the rest of the order and the way the court referred to the confession and the way it considered it along with the other evidence at the MAR hearing, it it did it it didn't properly consider the evidence at trial.
4: But, but isn't that a question of the weight that it gave to the evidence? About, I mean, the, the trial court was aware of it and said it was properly admitted, and 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 you're just saying they, the trial court didn't give it the weight that it should have had.
6: Yes, Your Honor. and and that is a that's an error of law. I mean, I I understand defendant's arguments about you know it's just the trial court just referred to it as a purported or alleged confession. But, but the, those words have they there, they're telling throughout the conclusions of law. This is how he, he uh, not throughout. I wouldn't say throughout, but. Uh, certainly in the conclusions of law, that's how he referred to it and that's how he treated it. You can look at the way. He treated, for example, examining um, uh, Mr. performance testimony about what uh Mr. Shaw told him in regards to the residual hearsay exception. I saw some of those things that the trial court said corroborated that would also corroborate the uh confession and so that so that doesn't really corroborate it to would not have corroborated Mr. Shaw's uh, testimony to the extent that it gives the guarantees of trustworthiness because it can it can do both. Um and so I think they're just there are just indications in the conclusions of law and the way the trial court treated it uh, to indicate that he did not say what he said originally that, but he did not do that in his. His conclusions of law
4: well, well, then just another minor factual point. You said that the that the victim uttered the um, defendant's name, but doesn't isn't the record. Show that he said the last name Reed, but that there were 2 reads involved and that he didn't say the, the defendant's full name. So it's that's at least ambiguous.
6: He did, yeah, yes, Ron. I, I obviously he, he just said Reed. He said uh, L. L. McCormick and Reed, um, and that yes, it, it ambiguous. There was a, um, uh, a cousin of defendants whose name was Reed, but I think you have to kind of you have to consider that along with the fact that Reed wasn't in the group of people that William McCormick testified that Shaw told him, you know, jumped out of the cab and participated in this crime um so i think you have to consider that here read read anthony reed was a person defendant named with him um and so no he did not say defendant's full name but i'm not sure the that that carrot that the ambiguity there carries
7: uh,
6: that much weight considering that shaw did not say anthony reed was with me
7: um, i have a i have a question also about a little factual matter um At the beginning of your argument, I think you indicated that um, this is not newly discovered evidence because the defendant knew the evidence um, and was available at the time. And I just want to make sure I'm clear on what you're saying that he knew and had available at the time. You're not contending that he knew exactly what Mr. McCormick was going to testify to. Are you? No,
6: your honor. I'm not, I'm not contending that at all. Um, because I, I think the court of appeals uh, was correct in its footnote uh, footnote 1 that the attorney never knows. You never know exactly what somebody is going to testify to. But I, I, I listening to the appellants arguments and the questions to the appellant um, is saying that. This was some kind of vague rumor from the street is not at all supported by the evidence. Um, I point the, the court to the motions that uh, the the attorney filed. He didn't say in those those motions uh, to to get the funds for the investigator. Uh, I had some information I heard on the street, and I need to find some people uh, unnamed. He said, and I'm quoting. He says I have quote unquote statements. Not rumor, not some vague notion of what went on. I have statements beneficial to defendant and he says, and he says, um, I can't testify to them. He was counsel, so he couldn't testify to them. Um, so this was not he, 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 he said, he looked, he looked at William McCormick's affidavit and he said he had heard on the street. Yes. He used the term on the street, but in his motions, he said statement. Um, that the perpetrators ran to McCormick's house, and he had heard the names Shaw, Bristow, and Cox. And to be knowing under the newly discovered evidence test, that was sufficient, more than sufficient, um, for the attorney uh, to know uh, what uh, the content of what Mr. Uh, McCormick testified to at the M.A.R. hearing, and to, to to sort of segue, go ahead and segue in talking about. You know, even if it was could not be considered like known in the sense that he 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 knew it. Um, talking about due diligence to find to find it, he did not exercise due diligence to uh, find it here under the newly discovered evidence test. I think it's important to note if you look at this court's decision in Rhodes, it says defendant has to rebut a presumption. That the the jury's verdict was correct and that uh, due diligence wasn't exercised at trial. So, you know, the whole uh, saying that this is, you know, when you can, the state is saying this is not due diligence, and that creates an ineffective assistance of counsel claim. Well, the ineffective assistance of counsel claim presumption runs the opposite. It's a presumption that counsel acted reasonably, and there's more things to consider within effective assistance of counsel strategic decisions.
7: Uh, things such as that, so just well, as, let me, let me interrupt you there. I, as I understood the defendants argument. Um, it is that the, the, the attorney did exercise due diligence at trial by hiring the investigator and who made several attempts to get people to talk to him and that they wouldn't talk to him. And so, therefore, he didn't know exactly what they were going to say are you arguing otherwise am i i'm sorry, your honor am I arguing that it wasn't due diligence? Yes, yes, it wasn't due diligence and and what, in what way diligence? what way was it not
6: well, due diligence requires a, a look look assessing whether it's due diligence requires the look at the circumstances of a particular case here this attorney as as miss Miller pointed out um had a fourteen year old uh on trial for first degree murder. Uh, his expert was telling me had sub average in intellectual function and he had confessed um, under these situations. The attorney should have, under this situation. Um, and to rebut the presumption that due diligence was not employed here, the attorney should have done more as. As justice Newby, as justice Newby pointed out, there are things he could have done that would not have required him to just cold put him on the stand. It's notable that with a material witness order, the witness gets an attorney. Um, the court has, uh, things that the trial court has things it can do in its, uh, inherent authority. Um, with this situation in mind, he should have done more here. Um, also, uh, it just as mentioned
7: in the States, well, the fact that, there, that he might have been able to do more doesn't necessarily mean that what he did wasn't. Due diligence wasn't a reasonable effort, does it? i i I disagree
6: under these circumstances, and given the client that he had and and what was at stake, he should have done he should have done more than what he did. that's the state's position
7: okay I understand
6: thank you and and at the second trial, it's notable that Mr. McCormick was eighteen years old, so the mother you know his the, the, Mr Webb's testimony was not necessarily that i that I couldn't locate him that's what the trial court found it was the mother was an impediment. To us, interviewing him. Well, at the second trial, Mr. McCormick was an adult, uh, 18. Um, So the mother was no longer an impediment. Things could have been done a material witness order, um, like in Beaver. And the state is no way can can say is saying that in this case you're bound by Beaver. There were there's there is distinguishing characteristics in that particular case, Uh, but it does indicate that when there is something that is material and important. There are things the trial court can do and the attorney should should do them and that that's the state's position. That's the state's position here and I wanted to just quickly mention that the state agrees that there was no testimony. From um, Mr. Webb that he saw um, Mr. in the um, courtroom. However, there was, as Miss Miller has pointed out and admitted, he did say M- Mr. McCormick did say he heard defendant's statement read in court. It could have been; it was one of three proceedings, tr- two trials, or a um, suppression hearing. And also, Mr. Webb did testify. His testimony indicated that he saw the mother and the sons in the courthouse, and they wouldn't; they would not speak; they wouldn't speak to him at that point. So, the state is contending. That the due diligence was not exercised here and the Court of Appeals was correct on that particular prong of the um newly discovered evidence test and the and the fraud court was incorrect. Uh,
3: yeah, can, can, I, can I ask you a question, Ms. Babb, because I've discovered over the years that if I understand where both sides are coming from, it's easier for me to understand which one I think is probably correct. I'm understanding Ms. Miller to say that. We have, we have a sufficient showing of due diligence in the event that the. uh, counsel for the defendant made reasonable efforts to. Contact the person who is allegedly in possession of newly discovered evidence, uh, but was unable to speak with that person. And therefore, since that person didn't, since the uh, attorney didn't know what the testimony of the, the witness would be uh due diligence was didn't put them on the stand the due diligence occurred. Your argument seems to be that you've got to do something more than that, but you also seem to be saying you don't have to do everything you can think of
6: you have you, you. Is,
3: is that a fair is that a fair characterization of your position first and then secondly assuming that it is so that you don't have to do absolutely everything, but you have to do more than was done here. What is it that should have been done in your view, short of everything you possibly could have done
6: that wasn't done? Uh, uh, your first part of the question is yes, that's, that's, the, that's the position of the state. More should have been done under the circumstances presented to the attorney here. Secondly, what he should have done was gotten a material witness order or somehow address the issue with the trial court.
3: And so, if you have, if we have a trial court finding in this case, I think that the that Mr McCormick indicated that because of the code of the street, he wasn't going to talk to anybody at that point. Uh, given assuming that there is such a finding, it's a long order. I may be missing something. I suspect, you know, the contents of it better than I Um uh, Assuming that I'm right about the content of the order. Uh, why would that not obviate the necessity for. Uh, The Material Witness Act, or the other uh, 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 actions that you described.
6: Well, you you look at what the defense knew. What the defense knew. The defense didn't know that. I mean, he knew that Mr. McCormick was avoiding him. That the mother was thwarting the efforts to get to him. But he didn't know that. That at the time that uh, Mr. Webb didn't know at the time that um, Mr. McCormick was falling. Street code and would absolutely not testify. I mean, uh, based on the street code. So I think you look more at what Mr. Webb knew at the time than what Mr. Cormack was saying in the in the MAR hearing on that particular. I'm sorry. and, And on that
3: point, it's also the important question is not necessarily what all of the evidence viewed from the light of one side or the other might be, but rather what the trial court found that had evidentiary support. Correct
6: yes your honor and okay. and here the trial court found that that mr webb was unable to locate the the, the witness and that's that that's nothing to to support that that particular finding um and
4: uh can i just can i just follow up on then what the implications of this so if we were to agree with you that um the the due diligence didn't happen here because the uh, defense counsel should have um gotten a material witness order based on the knowledge that he had at the time or address it with the trial court and 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 i'm in particular on page 43 of your brief you say this is a case in which the adversarial process was not functioning Functioning properly as due diligence was not employed at the time of the trial, so are you conceding that he received ineffective assistance of counsel?
6: No, Your Honor, I'm not conceding that. Uh, so,
4: uh, just so, help me understand how it's possible that that um, he can both his counsel can both not be diligent and yet be effective.
6: <laughs> um, well, as noted, there's a different there's different standards. The presumptions run. Differently here, the defendant is rebutting a presumption that due diligence wasn't exercised at trial. When you have Strickland, the defendant is is butting up against a presumption that the the counsel acted reasonably. I I would want to, uh, the, Mr. Webb testified and gave testimony um, in regards to a claim of newly discovered evidence, um, and and it's about the testimony presented. You know, I mean, I, we don't have a. Or a way to take a time machine and go back and ask him, you know, some more probing questions as a post conviction attorney uh, about that would go more towards an effective assistance of counsel. I would want to know. I would want to know more from him uh, strategic decisions. Is there anything else he considered. Um, before I could stake myself out and, and make that determination. I mean, I certainly see. what your honor is saying, but, but that's my answer. I, I would want to know more. I would want to question Mr. webb specifically. Having the standard for Strickland in my, for ineffective assistance in my, in my mind and and letting that. guide my questioning before I, I feel comfortable staking myself out.
4: On that so, so does that mean then that in this case, if we were to. Agree with the court of appeals that the trial courts order. Was erroneous as a matter of law, because these facts show that there was not due diligence as a matter of law. Don't we have to remand to the trial court for a hearing on an effective assistance of counsel claim.
6: Um, I'm not familiar with any, uh, if you could point me to some, some law, I'm sorry, your honor. I have to admit the ignorance on, on that. I don't know any case that says that. I know that defendant was perfectly, you know, and it would, would have, could have raised the ineffective assistance and counsel claim when he raised the newly discovered evidence claim. He raised this in the context of an M. A. R. He raised a, a Miller claim, um, life without parole for juvenile, uh, which the trial court will still deter, have to determine um, if, if, you, if you affirm the trial, if you affirm the Court of Appeals. But there was nothing stopping him from raising an ineffective assistance of counsel claim um, when he brought his newly discovered evidence claim, and I would say that he can't—he certainly can't bring a new MAR uh, raising um, an ineffective assistance of counsel claim because that would be barred. He had an opportunity to raise it when he uh, brought his MAR bringing the newly discovered evidence claim.
7: Let me jump in and ask you about our review of the actual issue here on the due diligence. Um, as I understand it, what we're to do is to determine whether the findings of fact that were made by the trial court support the conclusion of law that, um, the newly that it was newly discovered evidence. The details, of which were unknown to the defendant at the time of trial and, um, that the defendant could not have discovered or made available to the new available, the new evidence from McCormick with due diligence and that we're supposed to determine whether the findings of fact. Support that conclusion. Do you agree that with that process?
6: Do, do I agree that this court is to determine whether the findings
7: of fact support? Yes, I do agree with that. And and um, what about the findings of fact that were made by this trial court? Um, does not lead to that conclusion that I just read to you
6: well to say that the details were so that is that conclusion of law contains findings of fact in in, in there and, and sometimes that happens conclusion of law have findings of fact to say to make a finding in this case that the details were not known um is not supported as as i noted um, previously he did know details did he know exactly what he was testifying what he would be testifying to no, he, he didn't, but that that's not where the line is. And to be honest, I don't really know where the line would be legally for details, but the, our position is that that. It, that it was met here that he knew a sufficient amount of, of, of detail for it to be called enough to tell uh, for it to be known. So to say that he didn't to make a finding that he didn't know it in, in, in detail.
7: That's not supported by the evidence. Um, yeah. well, the findings affect 63, 64, 65, or to the effect that they um, did not locate him or uh, were not able to interview him to determine what he would have said. At the time.
6: Yes, uh, well, yes, they say that. And also, I, I don't understand. I, I don't un, I don't recall anything that said they couldn't locate them and uh, even Mr. McCormick again, testified that he was in the courtroom now.
7: Well finding of <laughs> fact number 64 says investigator Palmer this is a finding of fact attempted to interview William McCormick but was unable to locate him.
6: Oh well to, he was unable to locate locate him. The testimony from Webb was was that was that the investigator um was thwarted in his efforts by the mother uh not that he was unable to to locate.
7: That's the, a separate part of the same
0: finding.
6: Yes, Your Honor, but the there was nothing. They knew where these 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 people. They knew where Mr. McCormick and his brother Elliot were. To say that they were unable to locate them, there's no support for for that particular finding. In the in the evidence, so that finding is not supported by any of the evidence. They could locate them. Okay. Um. And and on that, just very quickly. Um. 15 A-1445 A-2 does not place the findings of fact and whether the findings of fact are supported by evidence beyond this court's review, appellate court's review, whether findings of fact are supported by the evidence is a, quote unquote, question of law in and of itself. Um, that it, the question of law with the court has defined that as being a question of law, uh, not in the context of newly discovered evidence, but in another case cited by the state Conley um, in, its, in its brief. Um, and so that's that's a I would say a settled issue in roads. Although no findings were uh, challenged, the, the court did say that findings of fact had to be supported by the evidence. Uh, quickly with regard to the probably true, that is that is a conc- I don't it's a conclusion of law. It is obviously heavily uh influenced by findings of fact and credibility and 95% of the time it's not going to be something that can be disturbed on appeal but here we not only have inconsistencies we have impossibilities as uh the court of appeals analysis showed including the time of day the paramedics report said the time was 1919 719 at night Mr. McCormick's testimony was that it was the wee hours, and that was important. That's not some side issue for him. That was important to his entire narrative. Um, and there were other things, too, as noted in the state's brief, that the court could, that Court of Appeals, in assessing what was either a conclusion of law with probably true or a mixed conclusion of law, finding a fact that is subject to de novo uh, review. Um, finally,
2: really quickly touched on uh, Mr. Shaw. Uh, being available, or there being being no showing that Mr. Shaw was unavailable. Can you uh, elaborate on that? I think you were interrupted.
6: Oh, yes, yes, Your Honor, and that's what I was going to talk about uh, the argument that they don't need to show unavailability or when unavailability is shown. They don't need to show when unavailability can't be shown. They don't need to show necessity. Um, there's no support for that. These are inherent. Uh, parts of the test for admission of hearsay. Admissible evidence and competent evidence are the same. They're synonymous phrases. So, uh, to, for hearsay to be competent evidence under the um, statement against penal interest, you have to show unavailability. For hearsay to be admissible under the residual hearsay exception, you have to show necessity, which includes showing. That um, you, you exercise due diligence to find the declarant that wasn't shown here fully admit the state did not. Um, did not object to Mr. McCormick's testimony, but that didn't relieve uh, a defendant of his burden of putting on that. This is competent evidence. It, it, yes. The trial hasn't happened. Um and you don't really know exactly availability at trial, certainly it's a future event, but you have to show that this is competent evidence and the hearsay was admissible and competent.
1: And
2: thank you. Thank you. I believe your time's expired.
1: Thank you, Justice Newby.
2: Uh rebuttal.
1: Yes, thank you, Chief Justice Newby. Um uh, I would just like to address how careful and thorough this order was from the trial court. The, A proposed order was submitted. Before
2: you do that, can can you get into the uh, whether there was any showing at all that Mr. Shaw was unavailable? Uh,
1: Yes, Chief Justice Newby. There was not a showing that was made um, regarding Shaw's unavailability, but the state would hold Mr. Mr. Reed to having to prove certain prerequisites for the admissibility of hearsay prior to the time of the evidentiary hearing, rather than prior to the time of trial. Um, and that's illogical and it's not sensible. If, if the requirements for the hearsay were going to attach prior to the time at the MAR evidentiary hearing, it would only logically make sense for it, 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 the, the state lost its opportunity to challenge admissibility at the MAR evidentiary hearing when it failed to object. And given that newly discovered evidence, we are looking to the effect of it on a new trial. Mr. Reed made a sufficient showing here by the preponderance of the evidence that this evidence would be admissible at a new trial. Even if Mr. Reed put on evidence that Shaw was unavailable at the time of the evidentiary hearing, that would not have stood for the fact that he would be unavailable at the time of a future trial. Mr. Reed can't be required to prove a fact that is not yet in existence in order
0: to prevail on his motion for appropriate release. Now, as to the
1: carefulness and thoroughness of this trial court's order, the trial court spent six months beyond when an order, a proposed order was submitted to it, and made substantial changes and edits to that order. And its 67 findings of fact, as well as its conclusions, show just the carefulness and the thoroughness of the trial court in this case. I'd like to address um, opposing counsel's statement that the finding that the investigator or the trial counsel was unable to locate, McCormick was unsupported. Um, that was in fact supported in the record. It was supported by trial counsel's testimony on um, page 13 of the
0: hearing on the motion for appropriate relief on October 4th of 2017. Um, the court had, had said, um,
1: referring to his investigator, he said, so he would go, they wouldn't be there, and then there would be an excuse This went on at least two or three times with him trying to get to them in order to get a statement from them about what happened. And so for the overwhelming majority of the time that the charges were pending and that trial counsel was representing Mr. Reed, uh, Mr. McCormick was under the age of 18. He was only 18 for about a week um, before the second trial that was held. And so both the findings that for many times they were unable to locate the McCormick brothers, uh, William specifically, uh, but then also, they were unable to interview, unable to get any
0: form of statement, um, and any indication of whether they in fact had relevant information that could be helpful to Mr. Reed. And so I, I'd like to
1: address a little bit further um, the residual exception 803.24, and why it's appropriate for this court to actually rule on the issue um, of whether this evidence was in fact competent, rather than remanding to the Court of Appeals for further consideration. Uh, For one, this issue has been fully briefed before this court, and this court should address several issues of first impression that have been presented here as to exactly when these prerequisites for the admission of hearsay apply, whether it's prior to the evidentiary hearing or prior to the new trial, and exactly what that standard is. This is the exact type of case where it is appropriate for this court to provide guidance to the lower courts and clearly explain uh, what those standards are and how they need to be applied further it's in the interest of judicial economy two of the three members of the panel that were that issued the decision at the court of appeals are no longer seated at the court of appeals and this this court has for example in state versus Laster, invoked rule two in the interest of judicial economy um, and it's also in the interest of justice in this case mr reed first had his new trial ordered in december of 2018 for more than three years from then um, and so we also would argue that it's in the interest of justice for it to be considered by this court whether the trial court's order finding that this evidence was admissible under 80324 and in the event that Shaw's unavailability were established it would alternatively be admissible under
0: 804b3 and that that, that was fully supported and should have been upheld on appeal The court of appeals decision in this case would invite reversal under an abusive discretion standard anytime the record evidence supports
1: contrary findings or contrary conclusion. The court of appeals here applied the wrong standard of review to factual findings in a newly discovered evidence case, it created a heightened standard for due diligence beyond what was reasonable, and it employed an incorrect application of the abusive discretion standard in determining whether this, this court's, the trial courts, I'm sorry, conclusion of the evidence would be competent and admissible at a new trial. And so, accordingly, we would ask the court to reverse the decision of the court of appeals. And to reinstate the trial courts order. Thank you.
0: Uh, Thank you, counsel. Uh, Thank you
2: everyone. Madam. Clerk.
1: Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. The Supreme Court of North Carolina will be in recess until 930 tomorrow morning. God save the state in this honorable
0: court.